Hello and welcome to Broken Vessels Mended by God, our lesson 5 in the Psalm 37 study, where we are going to learn to take a delight in the Lord. My name is Ruth Douthit and I'm a teacher of God's Word and I'm so glad you're here for lesson 5. In our last lesson, we looked at rest and how God's idea of rest differs from our idea of resting. In this lesson, we will look at what God means by waiting on Him. What does that look like to God? Psalm 37 provides us a picture of what waiting looks like. We must learn God's ways in order to truly take delight in Him. Wait. For most of us, waiting is difficult. I know for me it is. We want what we want when we want it. You've heard that our children are the microwave generation, right? And that they haven't had to wait for anything. All things are instant. They want to watch a movie, it's instantly available. They want a a note to a friend, it's instantly available. A meal, instantly available. I think the only thing our son has had to wait on is for a movie to be released. That still happens. Waiting is essential to faith, isn't it? I remember as a kid, we had to have TV dinners where they came in foil and we had they were frozen and they had to be put into the oven and it would take about an hour to cook. And then we would take it out of the oven, peel back the aluminum foil and check if the contents were hot. And if they weren't, back in the oven it had to go because there were no microwaves. And that was frustrating because we were hungry. And second of all, and it smelled so good, right? Waiting is essential to faith, isn't it? When our Lord God asks us to wait on Him, such waiting requires trust. And we looked in this Bible study about trust. David, as a shepherd, understood this. Asking his sheep to wait and follow him required his sheep to trust in him. And Jesus understood this as well when he said his sheep know his voice and follow him. And he said that he would lay down his life for the sheep. David, the author of Psalm 37, shows his people what waiting looks like. Waiting on the Lord looks like. Nobody likes to wait because it requires patience. And very few of us have such patience. Think about all the times you've had to wait for something. A person to arrive, a store to open, a movie or a book to be released, to hear about, to hear back about a job, or for a baby to be born. All of these events tend to be outside of our control. But when it comes to something we can control, it's even more difficult to wait. Think about a time when you had to wait for something that was within your control. How difficult was it to wait, to just stand back and not try and control something? I remember having to wait for a cab or a train and becoming so impatient, I decided to just walk to the destination instead. (laughs) I am that impatient. 
just recently, I was on time for an appointment at Arizona State University, but I had trouble finding where to park. And because I hate to be late, I simply just gave up and parked in a parking lot that I hoped was for public parking. And then I made my way across the campus and Arizona State University is a huge campus. But I made my way across campus in 100 degree heat and I had a very special appointment, so I was dressed up. And I made it on time to my appointment, but I was hot and sweaty and thirsty and very disheveled. I was just so full of anxiety because I didn't want to be late. When I arrived, my host asked if I had found the parking lot right in front of the building where we stood. No, I said, I just parked in some lot and walked. And she pointed out the window and showed me where her car and many other cars were parked less than 30 feet away from where we were standing. Had I waited and been patient and listened to the Google Maps directions, I would have seen that the correct parking lot was just a few feet away from my appointment. And I would have arrived on time, nice and cool and calm and collected. So you see, I have serious issues about waiting. Wait on the Lord. In Psalm 37, verses 7, and then again in verse 34, David wrote, Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Wait on the Lord and keep his way, and he shall exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. As you can see, even back in David's reign as king, God's people struggled with waiting on him. But without waiting on the Lord, how can we truly delight in him? Now, remember our imaginary structure, like the structures in ancient Rome. We have the base, the foundation, which is massive. And that foundation is God's word or God's truth. Then we have the roof, which is take delight in the Lord. And then we have the four columns holding up that roof. And the columns are trust, commit, rest. And today we're going to look at the last column, wait. What does waiting on the Lord look like to you? Think about it. Now let's look at what waiting on the Lord looks like to God. The word for wait that David used here in Psalm 37 is quava. I think that's how you say it. And it means bind together, gather together, expect, look up, look on, look upon, and look for. Now, this word is found elsewhere in scripture. In Genesis 1-9, where it talks about the waters gathering together. In Job 7, where it talks about gathering wages. In Isaiah 5, where it talks about looking for justice. In Isaiah 8, it talks about waiting for the Lord. And in Jeremiah 14, it talked about look for peace. So in these verses, did you see how Kova was used in many different ways? In Genesis, God gathered together the waters. In Job, it is used as a simile for waiting on our wages. And in Isaiah, it's used to describe how we look for justice. Do you see what David is trying to tell 
his people in Psalm 37 by using this word, quava. Read Jeremiah 8, Psalm 27, and Psalm 25, and you'll see how it talks about looking for peace, waiting for the Lord and being strong, and waiting on the Lord all the day long. David wrote in Psalm 25, lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day long. King David saw that his people were anxious. The enemy, the powerful nations around them were gathering in strength and power and in wealth. And not just that, but they were lording it over the teeny tiny little country of Israel. Some of God's people wanted to take up the sword and attack the enemy, while others were itching to join hands with the enemy because they envied them. But remember how David told them to stop, be still, don't move. And then he told them to come together, gather together, expect the Lord, look up, look for, look upon the Lord patiently. He wrote, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Wait on the Lord and keep his way. But are we not the same way? We grow, we grow so tired of waiting for God's perfect vengeance on those who have hurt us or on the enemies of God. So we want to take up sword and seek our own vengeance, don't we? Or we grow tired of watching those around us who are wicked prosper in their way while we eat soup and crackers or we drive old cars all the time. But they're growing in wealth and power. When will it be our time to have nice clothes, new cars, eat good food, live in big houses? So we open up a credit card account and we go on a shopping spree because we don't want to wait on the Lord to provide for us. And we eat at nice restaurants that we can't afford. We take really fancy vacations that we can't afford. And we take out loans to drive new cars. And now we are deep in debt. See how it works? That's why Psalm 37 is so appropriate even for us today. It's so relevant for what we endure today. All of us fall into these traps. David does a compare contrast again between the wicked and the righteous in Psalm 37. In verse 9, he said, For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the land. So he's telling the righteous, look up, look for, look to, gather together, expect the Lord, and you will inherit the land. And then he reminds them of the wicked. They plot against the righteous. They gnash their teeth at them. They draw their swords against them. They cast the righteous down. They slay the upright. So David is sort of asking the people, which one do you want to be? I know my answer, yet so many of us turn away and we go after the wicked because they have the power and the riches and their gold glitters. And we want what they have because we grow tired of waiting on the Lord. We turn our eyes to the world, the things that we can see, rather than toward the invisible God. Why do you think this is the case? Think about it. 
the righteous. But King David is so good at pointing us to the one we should all look to, Jesus. In Psalm 37, verses 16 through 19, he says, A little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked. So he's reminding them, be righteous, be like the righteous man. He wasn't speaking of himself. No, David knew he was deeply flawed and a man of war who shed blood in war and for personal gain. Instead of pointing to himself, he points us to the righteous man, the Messiah to come. Now, as we looked at our last lesson, was Jesus wealthy? No, remember in Matthew 8, he said, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no pillow to lay his head. Jesus was poor. He had nothing. Even his disciples had very little. Was King David rich? Yes. So do you think he knew what he was writing about? Yes. Jesus was a poor, righteous man when he walked the earth. And why do you think that was? Well, let's see what was written. In Matthew 13, it speaks of the wickedness of the riches choke the word. In Matthew 10, Jesus said, it is difficult for the rich to enter heaven. And he repeated that again in the book of Luke. Now remember, how did Satan tempt Jesus in the wilderness? We read in Matthew 4, he tempted Jesus with great power and great wealth and great prestige. But imagine the futility of such an act, for he was tempting the creator of the universe himself. He was trying to tempt Jesus, who created everything with worldly things. Imagine trying to tempt Jesus with glittering gold and fancy kingdoms when Jesus was God himself who created all of that and could, in a word, destroy all of it. And remember in Colossians 1, what Paul wrote, he described who Jesus is. The, everything was created for him and by him and through him. So Satan isn't as clever as he thinks he is. But neither was King David, and neither are we. We think we can fool the creator of the universe, right? But we fail every time. Did King David think he could fool God? Well, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, remember, he thought he could. He thought he could fool the creator of the universe. He saw the consequences of his sin, his little baby boy's death. Remember when he slept with Bathsheba and she got pregnant, King David tried to fool the people. He tried to fool God by slaying Bathsheba's husband. Now imagine living with the guilt of your little baby boy dying because of your actions. David had to live with that guilt for the rest of his life. Now, because he was a good shepherd, he was warning his people not to try and fool God. He reminded them of the consequences of the wicked. In Psalm 37:20, he wrote, But the wicked shall perish, and the enemies of the Lord, like the splendor of the meadows, shall vanish. Into smoke, they shall vanish away. So it's like he's saying, why would you want to be like them? Life application. Remember, all of this is built on the solid foundation of God's truth. So then how do we apply all that we've learned in this lesson to our lives? Well, we need to be wise and learn how to wait 
on the Lord in such a way that it pleases God. Patiently gathered together, looking up, expecting Him, and looking for Him to act. Taking our eyes off the world and our circumstances and the wicked and ourselves and putting our eyes on Jesus, the righteous man. In Psalm 37, King David wrote, The wicked borrows and does not repay, but the righteous shows generosity and gives. For those blessed by him shall inherit the earth, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. But you don't know my circumstances, Ruth, you might say. You don't know my pain. You don't know what I'm going through. And you know what? You're right. I don't know what you're going through, but I know God does. He knows your pain and he knows your circumstances. Do you believe that? He sees and knows everything you need even before you bow your head and pray. God provided for us the righteous man. In Matthew 14 and Matthew 15, we are reminded of when Jesus fed the 5,000. Now, what did he feed them with? Filet mignon and lobster? No. He provided just enough to satisfy the people. He gave them what they needed, maybe not what they wanted, but he gave them what they needed. And he also gives to the wicked what they deserve. Think of what happened in Noah's time and in Egypt during Moses' life. David said the steps of a good man are established. He said that in Psalm 37, 23. Now remember at the beginning of Jesus' ministry in John chapter 2, when he turned the water into the wine. Was Jesus appointed to do what his mother said? Or was he appointed to do his father's will? Were his steps established by God? Yes, and that's what he told his mother. We can apply the truths of Psalm 37 to our lives by patiently waiting on the Lord to act and not rely on ourselves or anything of the world because the world, God's word tells us, is passing away. Why would we then look to the world for any relief, for any of our solutions to our problems? 1 John chapter 2 says, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Jesus did the will of God. And do those verses in 1 John align with Psalm 37? Perfectly. As I've mentioned before in previous studies, God's word is like a tapestry. When pulled apart, each thread or verse of scripture may not be much to look at. It may not make sense. But once all the threads are loomed together, a beautiful picture appears, a story appears. And that's what a tapestry is. It's the same with scripture. You can't just take one verse. You have to put them all together. A single verse makes more sense when it's connected with all the verses that come before it and all the verses that come after it. God has a message for you. He knows your needs even before you speak them. He has made a covenant with all those who believe in him and swore by himself that he will keep those promises. Provision, protection, and presence. Being in our lives, having presence with God. 
King David understood this and reflected on just how God remembers. And so should we. In Psalm 37, verses 18 through 19, and then again in 25 through 26, King David wrote about the famine. He said, I am old now, but I have lived a long life, and I have never seen the righteous begging for bread. During a time of famine, they have always been satisfied. God has always taken the taken care of them and provided for them. Now, in scripture, God often used famine as judgment on his people, knowing that after the fall in the garden, all of creation would feed off the land. So striking down the land would definitely be a harsh judgment. But there is plenty of evidence that God provides even in the midst of his judgment. And you'll see that in the book of Ruth. In the Bible study of the book of Ruth, I wrote, we learned that God remembered his people and visited the land. And that's what made Naomi rise up and leave Moab and head back to Bethlehem. It says in Ruth 1.6, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and have given them bread. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Bethlehem. God remembered his people, showed mercy on them during a time of famine, and provided for them. As a result, Ruth, a Gentile, gleaned the fields of Boaz, her kinsman redeemer, and she and Naomi were saved. Now Ruth was King David's great-grandmother. And do you think he heard of this story of his great-grandparents all his life from his father, Jesse? I think so. I hear stories all the time about my grandparents and great-grandparents. It is obvious because King David trusted in the Lord for protection and provision, even as a young boy. Remember in 1 Samuel, he was only 16 years old facing Goliath of the Philistines. And what did King David say? He said, you come at me with spear and javelin, but I come at you in the name of the Lord of hosts or armies, the God of Israel. So to whom did David give all the glory? And upon whom did he reply? And on whom did he rely? That's right, on the Lord God of Israel. Now that, that makes sense, doesn't it? That at the end of his life, King David would give all the glory to God for providing for the righteous during a time of famine. My friends, we can easily see how Psalm 37 applies to us to this day. We may be in a literal famine, hunger and destitution, or in a spiritual famine. But either way, our God is there. He remains faithful, even when we are not faithful. Our God is a God of remembrance. And we would be wise to stop, be still, gather together, look up, look upon, and roll all of our cares and concerns to Him and lean on Him or trust in Him, the God who provides. I hope you are as encouraged by studying Psalm 37 as I am. Remember that structure. God's truth is the foundation. Trust, commit, rest, and wait are the pillars, the columns holding up taking delight in the Lord. And in our next lesson, we'll look at what King David meant in Psalm 37, verses 3 through 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. I promise you, these verses in Psalm 37 do not mean what you think they mean. 
and I'm excited for you to know and find out what they truly mean. So until next time, think about what did you learn about God today? And what challenged you and comforted you in Psalm 37? I thank you for joining me. I'm excited to learn more with you, and I hope that you stay tuned here on Broken Vessels, Mended by God. Thank you, and until next time, God bless.